due to the graphic nature of these crimes. Listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, drug use, suicidal ideation, child abuse, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Sarah Smith hummed to herself as she swirled oil around a warped frying pan. While breakfast cooked, her boyfriend and his friend Chuck drank some beers at the kitchen table. They only got up when the phone rang. It was Chuck's girlfriend, Marlene Olive. Sarah noticed Chuck tense up as he grabbed the receiver. She tried not to eavesdrop, but she couldn't help but overhear Chuck telling Marlene, hit her as hard as you can, harder than you've ever hit anybody. He sounded serious. Sarah's blood ran cold. Something was very wrong with Chuck Riley. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last week, we delved into Marlene Olive's turbulent relationship with her adoptive parents. When a young man named Chuck Riley fell in love with her at the height of her teenage rebellion, things took a disturbing turn. Today, will follow Marlene as her angst transforms into something truly dangerous. We'll see how she enlisted Chuck to carry out her darkest desires and the criminal investigation that finally brought them down. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I'm just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. When the sun rose on March 26, 1975, Chuck Riley was wide awake, staring at the whitewashed ceiling of the Marin County Jail. The 20-year-old hadn't gotten a wink of sleep. How could he, 
when he was facing criminal charges for grand larceny. His girlfriend, 16-year-old Marlene Olive, was on his mind too. Chuck felt lost without her. He was particularly concerned that the guards had taken the special bracelet she'd given him. Marlene claimed she'd cast a spell on it that allowed her to communicate with him across time and space. Whenever Chuck wore the bracelet and felt his wrist tingle, he called Marlene. Now he was out in the cold. Marlene could have been trying to talk to him that very moment, but he couldn't do anything about it. The thought filled him with dread. Please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. Psychologists who worked on Chuck and Marlene's case describe their relationship as symbiotic. The term refers to an unhealthy attachment between two individuals with at least one of them feeling they can't survive without the other. The concept could explain Chuck's seemingly irrational feelings about his girlfriend. Although it was her shoplifting habit that landed him in jail, Chuck was absolutely distraught without Marlene. But while Chuck's time away from her might have felt like an eternity, his mom Joanne bailed him out the very next day. His parents were more concerned than angry. Chuck had never gotten in trouble with the law before, and though he dropped out of high school his senior year, he was usually a responsible young adult with a strong work ethic. Ever since Marlene entered the picture, however, he'd put everything other than her on the back burner. Chuck's dad warned him he was going to end up in San Quentin one day if he didn't get his act together. Chuck took responsibility for his actions, but stopped short of promising to cut off Marlene. The bracelet on his wrist was already tingling. When Chuck finally got in contact with Marlene, he couldn't hide how happy he was to hear from her again. But his excitement was short-lived. Marlene wasted no time in telling him that they couldn't be together anymore. Her parents were distraught. She was grounded for the summer, and as part of her punishment, she wasn't allowed to date Chuck. Her dad, Jim Olive, believed he was a bad influence on her. Normally, Marlene would have done anything other than take his advice, but her short time in juvie was a wake-up call. She finally wanted to work on her relationship with her parents, so she agreed to do as they said. Chuck was devastated, but he wasn't giving up. He knew his connection with Marlene was unbreakable, so after a few days of giving Marlene space, he paid a visit to the Olives. He was sure Jim would change his mind once Chuck apologized and cleared the air. But he didn't get the chance. When Jim heard the sound of Chuck's beat-up Buick rolling down the street, he marched out of the house, fuming. Before Chuck could say a word, Jim started screaming. If Chuck ever came near his daughter again, Jim said he would kill him. Chuck felt like he'd been kicked right in the gut. With Marlene out of the picture, he had no one to turn to. His whole world was falling apart. A few days later, he drove to a nearby parking lot and attempted suicide in his car. As a result, he blacked out and awoke a few hours later. When he realized what had happened, he drove home and flopped onto his bed. For the next week or so, Chuck moped around the house, 
When his mood didn't show any signs of improvement, his mom knew she had to do something. Joanne had never been a big fan of Marlene, but Chuck was crazy about the girl. So she swallowed her pride and picked up the phone. Marlene's mom, Naomi, answered. Joanne explained how upset Chuck was. She asked if he and Marlene could still see each other if an adult was present to chaperone their dates. Naomi wasn't interested. She went off on a rambling tirade, asking why her daughter would ever want to be with a boy from a, quote, low-income family. Joanne hung up. Meanwhile, Marlene was growing tired of her good girl act. A couple of weeks in, she and Naomi resumed their stances as sworn enemies. Their screaming arguments continued and somehow became even worse than before. After one particularly bad fight, Marlene threw a knife at her mother. The escalation caused Naomi's anxiety and agoraphobia to intensify. Jim wasn't sure how to help, but he figured siding with Naomi would be a good start. But that only left Marlene feeling outnumbered and lonelier than ever. It didn't take long for her to resume dating Chuck in secret. This time, they had to implement some precautions. To make sure Marlene's parents didn't recognize his number, Chuck started wrapping himself in a sleeping bag and camping out by an outdoor payphone. The couple talked for hours on end. Over time, Marlene started to soften towards Chuck. She even started to imagine a future with him, though her plans weren't exactly the stuff of fairy tales. Marlene had thought about killing her parents for almost a year by that point, and with her family relations at an all-time low, she was starting to get serious. She'd seen papers in her father's office designating her as the sole beneficiary of her parents' $50,000 life insurance policy. With that money, she told Chuck, they could run away together to South America, get married, and start a family. But first, she needed his help to get rid of Jim and Naomi. Chuck desperately wanted a future with Marlene, but he wasn't willing to kill to make it happen at first. When she asked him to use his drug dealing connections to find a hitman, he stalled and remained non-committal. But Marlene didn't give up. And soon she found the ammunition she needed to convince him. On June 16th, Jim informed Marlene that he and Naomi were sending her to boarding school that fall. When Chuck found out Marlene's parents were trying to split them up for good, something inside him snapped. This time, when Marlene told him to grab a gun, he did. Coming up, Marlene calls the shots. They're role models, nurturers, and to many, the ultimate best friend. But what happens when Mommy Dearest has a dark side, one that's more criminal than caring? Find out in the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. 
Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of Malicious Moms. Every Sunday on Spotify, join me for a closer look at the moms who took their maternal instincts to illegal extremes. A beloved actress who would do anything for her child. A jilted ex who used her kids to take deadly revenge. Plus, a wife, a mistress, and an altercation with an axe you have to hear to believe. In this ParCast collection, learn the dire lengths some women went to help their children and how others used motherhood to carry out their misdeeds. Sometimes true crime can be a real mother. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now, back to the story. Chuck Riley didn't have any plans for June 21, 1975. The 20-year-old started his day by taking a bump of cocaine and a half-tab of acid. Since his teenage girlfriend Marlene wasn't technically allowed to see him, he figured he had nothing better to do than bliss out. Marlene's morning wasn't as carefree as Chuck's. She spent it trying to fix the loose strap of her platform shoe with a hammer. As she set to work on the floor, her mother Naomi came down to the kitchen. Like Chuck, she'd started her day with her drug of choice. Only hers was scotch. She was already drunk by the time she saw her daughter. Maybe it was the unwashed dishes in the sink, or perhaps it was the sight of the shoes, which Naomi thought were inappropriate for a 16-year-old. Whatever the initial trigger was, she and Marlene quickly fell into one of their no-holds-barred knockdown arguments. When Marlene shrieked at Naomi to shut up, she responded by insulting Marlene's birth mother. The argument culminated with both of them screaming that they hated each other. A ringing phone put an end to the discussion. While Naomi retreated to her bedroom to rest, Marlene answered to find Chuck on the other line. The second she heard his voice, everything that had been building up for months came boiling to the surface. She ordered Chuck to get his gun. Today was the day they were going to kill Naomi. As he usually did when she started to rant about her mom, Chuck tried to calm Marlene down, but this time she drew a line in the sand. She told Chuck that if he wouldn't do this for her, then the two of them were done. She'd never speak to him again, and for the first time, 
Chuck worried she was serious. If her parents sent Marlene away to boarding school like they wanted, then the two of them might split up for real. Besides, he knew nothing he said would change her mind, so not wanting to lose his girlfriend and too afraid to reject her, he went and got his gun. Then he headed over to his friend's house to wait until Marlene said it was time. Back at the Olive residence, Marlene went out to the garage, still trying to fix her shoe with the hammer. As she whittled away at the strap, she found herself staring at the tool, eyeing its bold red handle, the deadly curve of the claw. She thought, a person could do a lot of damage with a hammer. Meanwhile, Chuck sat at the kitchen table drinking beers with his friend, who we'll call Joe. Joe's girlfriend, who we'll call Sarah, cooked breakfast. To avoid thinking about the gun in his pocket, Chuck rolled a few joints and passed them around. When that wasn't enough to distract him, he did a few more lines of cocaine. By the time Marlene called again, the acid he'd impulsively swallowed that morning had taken full effect. His thoughts swirled in anxious circles as she asked him how they should kill her mother. She wondered how much prescription medication she'd have to put in the food to poison her, how hard she'd have to hit her with a hammer. Unsure of what to say in response, Chuck just told her to hit as hard as she could. But Marlene wasn't convinced. She must have decided she couldn't do the deed herself because she told Chuck to come over. He left Joe's place around 1.30 p.m. When he reached Marlene's front yard, he spotted her in the kitchen window, waving him away. When Marlene came outside to grab the newspaper, he ducked behind the neighbor's fence. Marlene whispered that she and her father would be gone in a few minutes to run a short errand. That was his window to strike. Chuck nodded. But while he waited for Marlene and Jim to leave, a wave of paranoia crept up inside him. He needed to stretch his legs, walk around, do something to steel himself for what was coming. He walked around the corner and hid in an azalea bush to keep out of sight. As he sat in the greenery, his acid-riddled mind wandered. He stared in wonder at the undergrowth of the bushes, then at the ladybug climbing one of the leaves. He sat there for what felt like 10 or 15 minutes, but he couldn't be sure with so many drugs messing with his sense of time. He wished he could stay here forever, watching the tiny life in the magical bush, but the sound of a familiar engine snapped him back to cold reality. He peeked out from his hiding spot to see Jim's green Vega driving by with Marlene in the passenger seat. It was time. But just as he was about to emerge from the bush, two cars pulled up in front of him. The random passers-by chatted for what seemed like forever. By the time they said their goodbyes, Chuck wasn't sure how much time had gone by, but he knew he was way behind schedule. He hurried over to the Olives, only to stop once again at the front door, conflicted. The last time he was there, Marlene's father said he'd kill him if he ever came back. He was scared, but Marlene had ordered him to do it. 
His thoughts jumbled and he found himself stroking the turquoise bracelet on his wrist. At last, a grim sense of purpose washed over him. In the end, Marlene's spell was stronger than Jim Olive's threats. When Chuck entered the house, he glanced down and saw the red-handled hammer propped up against the wall, a clear hint from Marlene. And that's where his memory gets a bit hazy. And it makes sense that Chuck's recollection of this particular day would be muddled. Psychologist Bessel A. Vonderkoek examined traumatic stress in a 1994 Harvard Review of Psychiatry essay. He proposed that this kind of stress, quote, interferes with people's ability to form a conscious, verbal narrative of a traumatic event. This, coupled with all the drugs Chuck took that morning, could explain why his memory changed over time. But what follows is his initial account of what happened that day. Almost in a trance, Chuck said he picked up the hammer and walked down the hall to the master bedroom. He pushed open the door and saw Naomi sound asleep on the bed. Her glasses were still on her forehead. A half-eaten apple and a kitchen knife sat on the nightstand. The next few moments were a blur. Chuck swung the hammer at Naomi's head, shattering her glasses and leaving a giant hole above her left eye. The force of the blow caused the gun to slip from Chuck's belt and hit the ground. It went off and narrowly missed his foot. Meanwhile, Naomi went into shock, unable to do anything but look around wildly and gasp for air. In a panic, Chuck swung the hammer again. This time, the claw got stuck. Not knowing what else to do, he pulled back with all his might. The tool finally came loose, but spattered him with gore in the process. Naomi started to make a gurgling sound as she tried to breathe. Chuck tried to use a pillow to smother her next, but before he could, he heard a car pulling into the driveway outside. The delay had cost him dearly. Jim Olive was home. When Jim and Marlene approached the front door, she hung back. As Jim walked past her, Marlene warned him that if he went inside, he would die. Thinking his daughter was joking, Jim chuckled and opened the door. Back in the master bedroom, Chuck was falling apart. He looked for an escape, but the only way out was down the hallway past Jim. Out of time and options, he attempted to hide behind a dresser as Jim entered through the bedroom door. Jim screamed in horror at what he saw. Only moments later, he spotted Chuck. In a rage, he grabbed the kitchen knife from the bedside table and charged at the boy. Chuck reflexively grabbed his gun and pulled the trigger four times. The bullets hit Jim directly in the chest. The 59-year-old slumped to the ground, dead. Chuck took a shaky breath and dropped the gun. He went into the living room and sat down on the couch. As he stared into the fireplace, he could still hear Naomi in the other room, taking her final tortured breaths. He rested his head in his blood-soaked hands. He couldn't believe what he'd done. Coming up, Marlene's spell is broken. 
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now, back to the story. Chuck Riley sat in the Olives family living room for a long time, covered in blood. He was a murderer, twice over. His thoughts swirled. His fingers went numb. Nothing seemed to make sense. Then, a comforting voice broke through the chaos in his head. He looked up. It was Marlene. The 16-year-old sat at Chuck's feet and told him everything was going to be okay. Now, they could be together forever. No one would ever keep them apart again. She swore to be faithful, to marry him. Everything he'd yearned for her to say since the first day they met. He felt his body relax as she whispered sweet nothings into his ear. She handed him a couple of Valium tablets and he swallowed. Then, she started unbuttoning his shirt. After the two had sex, the reality of the situation sank in. Chuck and Marlene had a lot of cleaning up to do. First, they took her parents' valuables. From there, they wiped the bloodstains off the mustard-colored walls. Marlene rinsed the bloody hammer herself. She placed it on the counter next to the stack of dirty dishes. As the couple moved about the house, they avoided looking directly at Jim and Naomi's bodies. Eventually, they took a break to get dinner with Chuck's friends, Joe and Sarah. Both immediately noticed something was different between Chuck and Marlene. Usually, Marlene disliked public displays of affection with Chuck, but that night, she sat in his lap and even rubbed his feet. After a few hours in their violence-fueled love bubble, Chuck and Marlene headed back to the house. They knew they couldn't avoid it any longer. They had to do something about the bodies. Stepping back into the bedroom was difficult, not just emotionally, but because of the smell. They'd left Jim and Naomi laying out since that afternoon, Almost 10 hours later, the stench was unbearable. Chuck and Marlene tried not to breathe as they wrapped the remains in plastic bags and dragged them out to the garage. They opened the back of the family station wagon and stuffed the bodies inside, but they still had no idea what to do next. 
they decided their best bet was to burn the evidence. And Marlene had the perfect spot. China Camp State Park was abandoned by the time Chuck and Marlene arrived. The site was once a Chinese-American fishing village, but Marlene and Chuck knew it as a place to go with friends to drink and do drugs. More importantly, they knew there was a large cistern there that people often used as a fire pit. Chuck and Marlene dragged the bodies from the car to the center of the cistern and dumped a few cans of gasoline on top. Then, Chuck used a trick he'd seen in the movies. He put the back end of a lit cigarette inside a pack of matches and tossed the whole thing onto the gas. As the pair drove away, they saw a pillar of smoke and flame rise up behind them, burning away the evidence of their dark deed. After that, Marlene and Chuck did their best to forget the events of June 21st, 1975, which wasn't too difficult for Chuck. He spent nights at his parents' place and days throwing himself into work at a waterbed store. But Marlene was now a teenage orphan who lived in an empty, blood-soaked house. It probably wasn't quite so easy for her to ignore the parent-sized toll in her life, even if she was responsible. So she tried to distract herself with one of her favorite hobbies, shopping. She grabbed her parents' credit cards and treated herself to a wild spending spree. Bags of unopened outfits and merchandise piled up in the living room. When new clothes weren't enough to distract her anymore, she started avoiding the house altogether. She slept over with friends nearly every night, filling her evenings with pedicures and girl talk. She tried to focus on what her pals had to say, but she could only think about such petty drama for so long. The weight of her secret ate away at her on the inside. She needed a release. So before long, she told her friends what she and Chuck had done to her parents. She even had her friend Deanna Krieger come over one day to help. Together, they cleaned the rest of the blood off the walls and moved around some furniture to cover the stains on the carpet. When Chuck found out Marlene had spilled the beans, he was furious. It was almost like she wanted to get caught. But as the days went on, it turned out that Marlene's loose lips weren't their biggest concerns. On the day Jim Olive was murdered, he was supposed to move to a new office with his business partner, Philip Royce. After Jim didn't show, Royce gave him a call, but of course, Jim didn't answer. When Royce didn't hear back from him by the end of the week, he called the police. The authorities went to the Olive residence to conduct a wellness check. When they got there, they found the house in shambles. The living room was covered in shopping bags and many of the rooms were in disarray. The authorities realized Jim and Naomi were nowhere to be found and called Marlene in for questioning. She'd been planning for the interrogation and told police that she'd been on a camping trip in Lake Tahoe with her friend Deanna Krieger over the previous weekend. When she got back home, her parents were gone. She said she'd expected them to show up at any moment, so she held off on reporting them missing. The detective didn't buy Marlene's half-baked story. Too much time had passed since Marlene had last seen her parents. 
a teenager who was expecting her mom and dad back home any minute, wouldn't have let the house get so messy. He grilled Marlene until her version of events started to unravel. She slipped up under pressure, giving the officer multiple conflicting stories. Now unsure of what to believe, the police got in touch with Marlene's friend, Deanna, and asked about her Lake Tahoe alibi. Initially, Deanna backed up Marlene's story, but as the interview continued, she decided covering up someone else's murder wasn't worth the trouble. She told them everything she knew, including where Chuck and Marlene had disposed of the bodies. With her description in hand, the authorities went to China Camp State Park and made a beeline for the cistern. Just like Deanna said, they found Jim and Naomi's remains sitting there. With the story confirmed, police detained Marlene and sent her back to Juvie. They also went to Chuck's work and arrested him there, bringing him back to the station for questioning. When they informed Chuck that Deanna had ratted him out, he cracked. Without so much as consulting a lawyer, he confessed to the whole thing on tape. The next day, the Olive murder hit the front pages of newspapers around the country. The press didn't spare the grisly details as they recounted the suburban nightmare in Marin County. Media outlets dubbed the case the barbecue murders because of the cistern where the bodies were found. While Marlene and Chuck awaited trial in their respective cells, they wrote each other letters, reaffirming their commitment to the relationship. But as days turned to weeks, turned to months, Marlene's feelings started to change. She had no regrets about killing Naomi, but she missed her dad, a lot. And she blamed Chuck for taking Jim away from her. Her anger bubbled into resentment. Over time, her letters got shorter and less frequent. Eventually, she stopped writing to Chuck altogether. Chuck was distraught when he realized Marlene was pulling away. He'd literally killed to keep her in his life, and now she was abandoning him when he needed her the most. One night, months into his imprisonment, Chuck reportedly decided he couldn't handle Marlene's silence any longer. He begged a guard to let him see his special bracelet. He wanted to know if Marlene was secretly trying to talk to him. The guard took pity on him and agreed. Chuck sat in the visitor's area and slid the bracelet onto his wrist. He waited for the telltale, tingling sensation to come back, but nothing happened. Chuck looked down at the turquoise stone and noticed a crack running through it. A feeling of deep calm settled over him. He couldn't help but imagine that Marlene's spell over him was finally broken. He returned the bracelet, went back to his cell, and slept soundly for the first time in weeks. When the trials began several months later, Marlene and Chuck found themselves on opposite sides of California's legal system. Since Marlene was just shy of 18, she was tried in juvenile court. Her defense claimed that she took no part in the murders or the disposal of the bodies. They also argued that Chuck held Marlene hostage and didn't let her contact the authorities after the murders. In the end, however, 
the judge didn't believe a word her lawyer said. He wanted to charge Marlene with first-degree murder, but because of the state's laws concerning juveniles, he couldn't. Marlene was sentenced to less than four years in jail. Chuck's trial was a different story. Because he was an adult with a prior conviction, the shoplifting arrest, and because he was accused of two murders rather than one, he faced the death penalty. His lawyer was willing to try anything to get Chuck's crime reduced, but the prosecution had an airtight, taped confession. They needed to get creative, so the attorney brought in several hypnotists to interview Chuck. Under hypnosis, Chuck's account of the day of the crime changed dramatically. This time, he claimed he'd entered the Olive household to find Marlene had already killed Naomi. He said he was simply trying to remove the hammer from her skull when Jim arrived home early. At that point, Chuck claimed he was forced to shoot Jim in self-defense. The use of hypnosis like this in a court of law is controversial. Some psychologists claim it can be useful, while others warn it can actually create new false memories. In a case like Chuck's, where his initial recollection of the events were already clouded by drugs and trauma, it's impossible to say which version was more accurate. Chuck himself was so stressed and high that he wasn't sure what was true and false. Although he clearly remembered shooting Jim, he claimed that he honestly couldn't remember killing Naomi. To the jury, however, it didn't matter. The evidence against him was overwhelming. After four days of deliberation, they found Chuck guilty of the first-degree murders of Jim and Naomi. A month later, he was sentenced to death. In a stroke of irony, his execution was set to take place at San Quentin State Prison. His father had been right all along. But that wasn't the end of the story for Chuck and Marlene. While Chuck sat on death row, California was in the process of striking down the death penalty. When it was outlawed in 1978, his sentence was commuted to life in prison. Around this time, Marlene was transferred to a minimum security facility to serve the remaining three months of her sentence. But instead of waiting it out, she jumped a fence, ran to a waiting car, and escaped. She was found nine months later when New York police picked her up on suspicion of sex work. She was going by the name Nina Reed. Once the authorities realized who they'd actually hauled in, Marlene was sent back to California. But by that time, she was almost 21 years old. Legally, they couldn't hold her past that age. So despite the fact that she'd broken parole, they could only add a few more months to her sentence. Marlene was released several days shy of her birthday in 1980. From there, Marlene spent the rest of her life becoming the very type of person Naomi Olive had railed against. She changed her name and jumped from city to city. The last time anyone heard from Marlene Olive was in 2003, when she pleaded guilty to cashing a fake check and was sentenced to seven years in prison. Chuck Riley used his time in prison to turn his life around. He stopped using hard drugs and fell in love with another woman. He even finished college, earning a degree in business administration. 
He became eligible for parole in 1982, but his appeals were rejected time and time again because of the violent nature of his crimes. Finally, after more than 30 years of hearings and reversals, Chuck was granted parole in 2015 at 52 years old. If Marlene Olive had a healthier relationship with her mother, things might have turned out differently. If Chuck Riley had stood up to his girlfriend, he might not have taken two lives. Instead, drugs, naivete, and passion fueled a horrific tragedy. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on the barbecue murders amongst the many sources we used, we found Bad Blood, a family murder in Marin County by Richard M. Levine, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Danny Messerschmidt, with writing assistance by Natalie Pertsovsky and Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. For many, Sunday is a special day spent with family. That makes it the perfect time to check out the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every Sunday in this Parcast collection, join me for an intimate look at the matriarchs who were far more criminal than caring. Warning, this isn't your mother's podcast. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify. Spotify.